G'day humans, this is a preview of an episode which paid subscribers are getting, although they don't have to pay at the moment until uh, February. Uh, If you haven't bothered getting your own dedicated premium podcast feed, and if you want to hear all of today's episode, then you can go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash subscribe or slash listen if uh, you want to be taken directly to where you can generate your own personal premium podcast feed. Scott Adams is really interesting. He's the creator of Dilbert, which is the one of the most successful cartoon strips in the history of the world. Uh, 2,000 newspapers it ran in, or runs in, not sure, in 65 countries in 25 different languages. And Scott Adams was sort of prescient about Donald Trump. He, he noticed the strength of Trump's uh, persuasion and persuasive powers back during the primaries before Trump even had the Republican nomination. And so Scott Adams became something of a kind of contrarian Trumper in the creative class, a sort of a lone person singing Trump's, if not praises, then at least attributes when others were shouting about how terrible a Trump presidency was going to be. And so this conversation is one that I had in 2017. We've cut out most of the nonsense about me and him arguing about what the Trump presidency was going to look like, because that's kind of irrelevant. And we've lent into the portion of the conversation that was about Scott Adams's life and his creative urge and his perspective on success, his vision of what he wanted to do with his life and of how you can achieve what you want to do with your life too. Enjoy uh, this preview and do consider bothering to pull your wallet out of your pants and uh, become a paid subscriber. Otherwise, I will see you next week. Enjoy. I just want to start with who you are because a lot of people will have been aware of Dilbert but may not have been aware of you as a human being until the Trump era. Where did you grow up and who was your family? What did you like as a kid? Wow, big question. Um, I grew up in the country in upstate New York and uh, was a small uh, family with modest means, sort of a Republican-y conservative town. And as soon as I could get out of there, I got out of there and went to California where opportunity was greater and the people were more open-minded and life was better. What did open-minded mean to you at, at that age? I, I pretty much grew up in a town of racists. <laughs> you know, if, okay, if I, that's a start. If, if I can characterize them that way. Um, but most of it probably had to do with the fact that uh, the town was almost you know, entirely Caucasian, bunch of white people. And they just didn't really have any contact with anybody else. So, But, it, but that racism, so that was mostly in the form of uh, inappropriate jokes that we thought were funny when we were kids, and I no longer think are even slightly amusing. Did you find the the was it that you found the racism objectionable, or that you found the whiteness of the place tedious? You know, you get used to whatever you're born into. So I don't think I ever gave it a second thought. Um, it just was what it was. Yeah, and then when you got to California, was it everything that your uh, your New York brain had dreamed of? Yeah. Yeah. It was probably the smartest thing I ever did was uh, immediately after graduating college, which was near my home in upstate New York, uh, I traded my car for a one-way ticket to California. And because I wasn't planning on coming back, you know, and I figured the the odds were good in California for just about everything. Part of what I write about and talk about 
is uh, strategies for success. And one of the best strategies is if you have the option, you should move from wherever the uh, opportunities are low to wherever they're high because where you are is, is a big part of your overall success. Yeah, yes, you're preaching to the converted there. I wanted to work in the media, so I moved from Sydney to New York, which, is, uh, which was a good move in hindsight. Um, yeah, that, that that type of move rarely doesn't work if you're sure what you want to do anyway. That's right. And you know what? If it doesn't work, you know what the worst case scenario is? You spent your 20s in New York City. I mean, there are worse, there are worse fates. <laughs> you know, uh, so what did you? What was your vision when? Presumably, it was not merely a negative desire to get out of where you were, but there was some. What was the? Can you put some flesh on the bones of your vision of what a California future might have looked like? Well, it, it very much was a desperate need to get out, as well as moving towards something that had more opportunity. the The small town experience is boring in a way that only prisoners who have been in solitary confinement for years can understand. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of brain death, a slow brain death. California, um, on the other hand, has so much going on, so much variety in people, variety in thought, variety in, you know, economic opportunity. It just, uh, it was the right place to be if you wanted your brain stimulated and you didn't like, didn't like normal and you didn't like vanilla. Let me just let me just pause this 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 uh, this traipse through your your biography for a moment to make a couple of uh, notes and get your thoughts on them. One is when you talk about small town uh, mentality, you sound very much like the elitists who uh, middle Americans and many Trump supporters uh, resent. The, the, I get accused of of this, thinking that there's much so much more cosmopolitan cosmopolitanism and openness on the coasts and and in big cities than there is in in small towns that, that, that and that that it in itself is a bubble you know we've had all this conversation about the bubble since since trump and that actually when you say that there's a variety of thought in california i know a lot of trump supporters in california who say there's no variety of thought whatsoever that it's that it's become a an enormous echo chamber how do you reconcile that well um when they say there's no variety in california of political thought they're just uh, noting that the dominant um, the dominant preferences on the left, you know, there are more Democrats here than Republicans. But that doesn't mean there aren't plenty of people with different opinions all over the place. So uh, you can find yourself surrounded by people who only agree with you in California, but you don't have to drive too far to find plenty who don't. So it's it's more of a choice here. You know, in, where I grew up, you'd have to drive pretty far to find somebody who had a different opinion. And by the way, before I malign my old hometown, let me point out that, that this was 40 years ago. So if you were to compare everybody's, you know, ethnic sensitivity, their, their, their sexist sensitivity 40 years ago to today, there's no comparison. So I, I would assume if I went back today, it would be a lot like California's. Well, yeah, maybe more than it was forty years ago, but I would I would also grant that probably not as 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 diverse in its in in the number of outlooks that are bumping up against each other as you get in big cities. Yeah, just I would say more open minded in general, but certainly less diverse. Yes. Yeah, and what about the the remarks that you made about uh, about small towns versus big cities? Do you do you still? But how, how I I find that to be contradictory, given what your political inclinations are right now. 
Well, this is one of those cases where since I have lived in both the small town, you know, I grew up there and have lived my adult life in more metropolitan areas. I, I feel like that gives me a little license to be a little more brutal about my own experience <laughs> than than someone who hasn't experienced it. So if if you, you know, grew up in only a metropolitan surrounding and you had bad things to say about uh, folks who live in rural uh, places, I, I don't think I would take that as credible. Um, so that's the first thing is that, you know, I have a little bit of license because I've been there. Um, but in terms of do they think differently, I would say uh, yes. You know, you could make a generality that that their experience is different enough that it influences how they think. Okay, so getting back to this vision of, of California, what did you think that your future was going to be? What did you want to do with your life? Well, when I first left uh, college, I had a degree in economics, and I asked my economics professor, you know, what should I do with the rest of my life? I'm going to California. What's what's the smart thing to do? And he took out a brochure for Crocker National Bank, a big bank that doesn't exist here anymore. And they were doing a lot of innovative technology things. And he said, uh, go work at this bank. They're, you know, you have an economics degree, so it makes sense to be at a bank. And they're at the tip of the spear for technology. You know, they were early adopters of ATMs, for example, before anybody had them. And I thought, okay, I'll go there. I'll let them train me in the ways of the world. And then I'll have enough skills that I can go somewhere on my own when the time is right. So that's what I did. I took a job that would pay for at, at the bank. Uh, I took a job that would pay for all of my outside classes, paid for my college, paid for me to get a, an MBA at night, um, and did a, a phenomenal job of, of training me. Were you a frustrated writer at the time? No, not at all. Um, I had no no ambitions to write a book, no thoughts about that. I had always thought about being a cartoonist. So my earliest uh, hopes and dreams from the age of, let's say, six years old, you know, for several years, um, I wanted to become a professional cartoonist. I wanted to become Charles Schultz. Mm. And, you know, I was addicted to Peanuts comics, and I thought, hey, that looks like a good job. I, I could do that. But I wasn't a good artist. And by the time I reached the age of 11, I think, um, 11 or 12, I decided that it's very rare for anybody to become a famous cartoonist. It's, it's, almost, <laughs> it's, 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 it's almost so rare that it's, it doesn't feel realistic or clear thinking to even set that as an objective. Mm. So, so I changed my objectives. You know, I was now old enough for all the, all the magic and optimism to be, you know, drained enemy by the system <laughs> and i thought well i have good grades i'll become a lawyer lawyers get paid well so when i went to college i thought to myself well i'll be some kind of a lawyer it didn't take long for me to think about that a little bit more and i couldn't imagine any day of work as a lawyer that sounded good to me you know looking at contracts no thanks you know uh, winning a court case when someone else has to be the loser on the other side doesn't feel as good as it should be. You know, can I do something where everybody's happy? So I did look at a whole variety of different things that I could do with my life, but I never let go of that, that dream that maybe I could do something in cartooning. I, I did a lot of doodling and, you know, I got good responses sometimes from friends, 
So it was always percolating in the back of my mind, but it wasn't the first thing I tried or the second or the third thing. When did the doodling turn into something more? Well, I had a strange experience with my two careers, first at the bank, and then I moved to the local phone company out here. And it was in the 80s when I was working at the bank when uh, diversity in corporations was terrible. They had pretty much no representation of women or minorities in, in management. And the local uh, press got on the bank and said, hey, we just looked at all your you know, all the information about who your managers are and you're doing a terrible job with diversification. And that was embarrassing for the bank. And so the order came down uh, and my boss actually called me into the office and said to me, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but you know, I'm just going to be honest with you. I can't promote you because you're white and male. And I said, well, how long is that going to last? And, <laughs> and, and, and she, she told me honestly, because I have no idea. You know, I, I can't tell you when this will end. Until you get sex transition surgery or put on blackface, I suppose, that you're going to remain being white and male. Uh, well, I, I wouldn't put on the blackface, but I, I take your point. Uh, so I moved to uh, Pacific Bell, uh, the local phone company, and got on the fast track there. Uh, you know, I was identified as an up-and-comer, was finishing my MBA at night. And one day my boss called me in and said, I don't know how to tell you this, but we're getting a lot of a uh, lot of pressure from the press. It turns out we don't have any diversification in management, and until further notice, there's just no way we could ever promote you. And after the second time that my career was destroyed by sexism and racism, um, and by the way, let me let me say as clearly as possible: yes, I know that uh, I had my white privilege and patriarchy to rely on. And I did, in fact, leave those bad situations and go on to make a fortune. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing to be a white man in America. I want to be as clear as possible about that. I just happen to have two coincidental experiences back to back, which are entirely true. I'm not making up any part of that, um, in which I couldn't get ahead because of my race and ethnicity. Now, uh, sometimes people say to me, well, you know, uh, are you ethnically insensitive? And I say, you know, Christ is just the opposite. If you've actually been on the receiving end of racism, I mean, literally, or sexism, literally, in, in an economic way in which there's no ambiguity to it, you're told to your face, yes, your gender and your ethnicity are why we will not promote you. If you haven't had that happen to you, you don't take it as seriously as as if you do. So I'm I'm probably I'm probably uh, more let's say more emotionally attached to the issue of you know equal opportunity than most people would. So if they had a. Perfect-